praise the Lord for all he does. And we sing Hosanna and we thank him for his word. This morning's reading, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to uh, look at verses 24 through 35 this morning. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his right hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people answered and said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today, and the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. And they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ihalan, and the people were very weary. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil, and took sheep and oxen and calves, and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, I want to invite our children who are already at Children's Church <laughs> so we can skip that step. And uh, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the word of the Lord. Hosanna, Lord save. That's what that word means. And so, Lord, we, we do praise you for the salvation that you have given to us. And thank you that it is in Christ alone that you have bestowed it on us through faith, not by works that we would do like any of us should boast. Uh, we're grateful for the salvation we have, Lord. May we enjoy it more richly every day. Father, I want to pray for our sister church, Church of the Canyons, uh, an evangelical free church in Canyon Country, as their candidate this morning preaches his um, second uh, candidating sermon. And then the Lord, the, uh, the church will vote uh, today at noon if this is the man that you've called them. So, Lord, I pray that you would grant to the whole congregation who's involved in the vote the wisdom to know if this is the right man that you want to lead that congregation. And pray, Lord, it's our prayer that it is. We pray that their search would be to an end and that uh, you would bring this man and his wife and his family to the church and that they would begin to rebuild uh, after years of, um, 
having no one in the pulpit and and uh, begin to strengthen the body again and, and lead them in Christ even more. So please have mercy on that church and that body of believers and bring them the right person, we ask. Uh, Father, we want to pray again for Tabi and, and Ebony with the arrival of uh, Tommy the fourth. Uh, we pray for their uh, blessing and for Ebony's healing and for the family to coalesce. It, it, there's a new person involved in that situation. And so, Lord, I just pray that the, the family would be um, getting used to the new situation, the new rhythm, and uh, be walking uh, closely with you, but uh, also in the joy of having this new child in their lives. Bless them, we pray, Lord. Father, I want to pray for um, Tim Keller, who's been a, a tremendous influence and blessing on me personally. Uh, he's had pancreatic cancer, and now they've just found, once again, more tumors. And so we pray, Lord, that um, uh, you would continue to bless your servant, that you would uh, give him more years to serve, uh, more years to write, um, more years to delight in you. And we pray that this new round of uh, um, chemotherapy would be as effective as the previous ones. Uh, Lord, it's been a miracle that he has survived this long. Usually pancreatic cancer is, is not something that goes smoothly as it has for him. So thank you for hearing the prayers of your people, and we pray that you would bless the Kellers. Father, we want to pray also for Dan Fordham uh, and his family as they gather um, probably this day to say goodbye to his mother as she's home uh, from hospital uh, in hospice care with uh, her family around her. Lord, if it's time for her to go, we pray that she would um, she would leave this, uh, this life smoothly without suffering. Um, we pray that she would go into your arms uh, calmly and quietly. Father, I pray for the family that um, those who know you would not grieve as the world does, but grieve in hope of the resurrection. And Father, those in the family who don't know you would be um, drawn to those who do and how they can, they can miss their mother and yet not be overwhelmed. So, Lord, would you use even his mother's passing as a chance for them to share their hope that they have in Christ with uh, those around them? And so be with them, we pray, Lord. Lord, we also need you now to be with us as we turn to your word. Uh, would you help us to see and to understand? Holy Spirit, would you open our minds and our hearts and use your word to conform us to the image of Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, in 2017, so the Pew Research Center does regular um, surveys of America to kind of measure what our religion is. How do we, you know, what are, what are we at religiously? And so in 2017, they found that um, people who identified as spiritual but not religious had gone from 19 to 27% of America. That's a huge increase, 8% over five years. Today, we would call them nuns, no particular religion, but still kind of spiritual. So that's, that's spiritual but not religious. Well, what does that mean? It can mean a number of things. So they did a little digging on that. And what they found was roughly uh, three quarters of those people who said they were uh, spiritual but not religious, uh, accept at least one new age tenet, one new age belief. And those things include things like resurrection, astrology, psychics, and the presence of a spiritual energy in physical objects like mountains or trees. So the spiritual, not religious uh, tend toward that way. Um, the following year, um, there was an article in The Atlantic, and they talked with Michael Hedstrom, professor of religion at University of Virginia, and he was talking about this, this spiritual but not religious kind of phenomena, and he described those kind of folks, he, he used the word church instead of spiritual, but he said for them, the word church means you need to put on uncomfortable shoes, 
sit up straight and listen to boring old fashioned hymns. Spirituality though, is seen as a larger, freer arena to explore big questions. Um, they also talked in that article to Kenneth Pargament, a professor who studies psychology of religion at Bowling Green State. And he said, spiritual is also the term people like to use. It has all of the positive connotations of having a life with meaning, a life with some sacredness to it. You have some depth to who you are as a human being. Then um, they kind of interpret, they said, as a spiritual person, you're not blindly accepting the faith passed on from your parents, but you're also not completely rejecting the possibility of a higher power. So this is what they mean by spiritual is it's kind of open to these different experiences, kind of looking for some meaning, but not religious. I'm not looking for some specific rigid dogma that some church is going to push on me. That's, that's what they're, they're mean by spiritual, but not religious. Um, one of the questions, though, is what does the Bible mean when it says spiritual? The Bible isn't so mushy on spirituality where it's just generally positive feelings about astrology or or ghosts or anything like that. When we want to understand what the Bible means by spiritual, <laughs> the place to go is the most difficult verse in the entire Bible that talks about it. And that'll help us get it, right? So this is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, Paul says, uh, this is in verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If, it's an, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, this has always caused me real heartache, real headaches, because body is the physical portion of us, the, the thing you can see and touch and poke. But the spiritual is the non-corporeal aspect, the non-material aspect. So we have a body and we have a spirit. We have a physical presence and a non-physical presence. So what does it mean that we have a spiritual body? That seems to be an oxymoron. It seems like those two terms contradict each other. We can't have spirit and body be the same thing. Well, the clue is I must be reading it wrong because Paul says we have, we're going to, in the resurrection, have a spiritual body. So the problem's not Paul. The problem's not the Bible. The problem, problem must be me. So what you do is you have to back up a little bit and you read a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 15. In verses 44 or 42 and 43, just before this, he draws these comparisons between our current body and our resurrection body, our spiritual body that we will have. And what he says is our natural body, the one we have now, it's perishable, it's dishonorable, and it's weak. And that sounds like me. Um, I would agree with that. It's perishable. It's getting worse every day. Um, it is uh, dishonorable. It's weak. There's, there's parts of me that are just broken. But our spiritual body, he says, our spiritual body will be imperishable. It won't break down. It will be glorious, not, not dishonorable. And it will be raised in power. And so what he's talking about there, he's drawing this contrast between the physical body you have now and the physical body you will have in the resurrection. So what does he mean that it's a spiritual body? Well, what I think he means is when he talks about the spiritual body is this body, this resurrection body will be under the influence, dominated, in line with, in complete harmony with the Holy Spirit. Why would I say that? I think the reason that that works is because when you consider what the Holy Spirit does in us now, what is the Holy Spirit doing in us today? So in the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells the apostles, the promise of the Father is coming to you. Then in, in Acts chapter 2, the promise of the Father comes in power. It is the Holy Spirit. 
and they go out and they begin to preach. And as they're preaching, they're accused of being drunk. And, and Peter's defense of not being drunk is he says, look at Joel. Look in the prophet Joel. In that book, God promised he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that's what you're seeing today. So at the end of his sermon, when the people are cut to the heart, they say, what should we do? And he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. The promise of the Holy Spirit. So we are sealed. We are, the way the rest of the New Testament talks about it is we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. All of us, when you become a, a faithful follower of Jesus, when you become a believer in Jesus, you are given and sealed in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, is alternately referred to as a guarantee or a promise. Well, what's he a guarantee or a promise of? He's a guarantee or a promise that our redemption will be fulfilled. It's not done yet. We have a new heart and a new soul, but our bodies are the same. That's that perishable, dishonorable, weak part. But the promise of the Holy Spirit means that at the resurrection, all of that work he's been doing in us, sanctifying us, drawing us into the image of Christ will be complete at the resurrection. So that's what he means by your spiritual body. So this morning, as we approach this, this text, we have to keep the idea of what the Bible means by spiritual in mind, because what we're going to see is that there is tremendous danger in being religious, but not spiritual. We'll also kind of infer the, op the opposite, that it's dangerous to be spiritual, but not religious too. But, but what we're going to see is we're going to see something about somebody being religious, but not very spiritual. So we have to remember where we're at. We're in the middle of a story here. It started with Jonathan going and facing the Philistine garrison and saying, hey, God can deliver by many or by few. Let's go attack them. So he, Jonathan is counting on the Lord, coming in to, to rescue him. And then Jonathan and his armor bearer charge into the garrison. And there's a slaughter. They, they've got everybody routed and they're running. And what we saw last week was the people, that's us in the story, were trapped in holes in the ground, in cisterns, and in tombs, hiding from these folks. We needed Israel's king's greater son to come out and rescue us, to beat our enemies, so that we could be set free from those holes. So that's where we're at in the story. We're not done with that story. It continues on. So let's pick up where we're at now. So after the, um, Jonathan has this big victory in the camp of the Philistines, Saul finally kind of wakes up. He's, he's been sitting under a pomegranate tree, just taking it easy. But now he wakes up, he hears this tumult in the camp, and he finds out, oh, it's my son is over there. And so he's going to engage. And as the, 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 uh, they begin to see the Philistines scatter and the, the noise gets louder, finally Saul says, let's go. We're, we're going to assemble the army and we're going to go fight them. So beginning in verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on them saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening and I have avenged on my enemies. They are hard pressed. They have been engaged in the battle. That hard pressed is, is just what it sounds like. They have been working really hard. And so uh, Saul says, nobody eats until I'm avenged, until my name is cleared because these Philistines came and they set up a garrison in my territory. So until my name is cleared, nobody eats. I mentioned last week that um, Napoleon Bonaparte had said an army marches on its belly. Um, apparently, uh, Saul missed that class in military commander school uh, because this is a bad idea. They've been hiding. 
They have now charged out. They're running across this open field. They're chasing down an enemy who is garrisoned. And what we mean by garrisoned is they had a camp set up and they were sitting in the camp and they were just guarding this territory. You want an army in that case to be well-fed, well-provisioned, well-rested, and then go charging after them because they've got to chase them down. But like I said, he must have missed that class in uh, squadron officer school or something because he blew it. So once, once they're gone and they're out chasing them, he says, nobody eats. And so it says, so none of the people tasted food. They were afraid of their commander. Their commander said, don't eat. I can imagine some of these people are like, this is really dumb, but yes, sir, we'll do it. I've had moments like that when I was in the Air Force. This is really stupid, but yes, sir, here we go. So none of the people tasted food. Now, when all the people came into the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And the people entered the forest. Behold, the honey was dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for they all feared the oath. So the, this, these bees had filled this forest and built their hives, and it was so successful. They were so overwhelmingly successful that the honey is just dripping down. Now, we tend to think of honey in boxes, and you, know, you pull the thing up, and, and it's all orderly. I actually saw a video. I forget what country it was supposed to be taking place of where this was happening. They came up to a big tree that had fallen and the bees had built a hive inside there and they, the man broke a piece off and was eating the honey. So this is real. This is not, you know, uh, some kind of myth thing. They come into the forest. Here's all this honey. Here's all this food just hanging there. Now, way back about a billion and a half years ago when I ran the Air Force Marathon, when I was young and fit enough to do that, especially in my training, but also in the marathon, I, I carried something called a goo. There's these little packs. And what it was, was it had uh, all the nutrients and stuff. It had carbohydrates and some caffeine and, and uh, electrolytes in it. And you just rip it off and squeeze it in your mouth and go, this goo would recharge you. Because as you're running, you're, build, you're tearing down all the, the stuff that's in your system. And so I kept hitting a wall at about... Uh, seven to 10 miles, I would just poop out. I just couldn't go any further. And so a friend of mine said, try that. And so I would hit these gels about this five to seven mile mark and it would get me over that hump and I'd be okay. Um, when I was looking into that stuff, you can make it at home, you can make it naturally. And guess what the chief ingredient in most of them is? Honey. The honey is this natural source of carbohydrates. It's this immediate sugar hit to your system to get you back up and going. But then they would add things like maybe protein powder or peanut butter or something to get some, some protein in there so that your body has something to work on as you go. So what they've got here is they've got a starving army on their feet, rushing after the bad guys, and they walk into the gel factory of nature. And the boss says, don't touch it. This is not good. So this, this, is, this is pretty bad. They, they didn't do it. But Jonathan... So remember last week I said this story is this contrast between Jonathan and Saul, the father and the son. And last week we said, or the week before we saw Saul had been rejected as king and God was seeking a man after his own heart. And last week I posed the question, could it be Jonathan? He looks promising. He's still looking good. Watch what happens. Jonathan hadn't heard the charge. So he put his staff in the, into the honeycomb. And he dipped it and he put his hand to his mouth and it says his eyes became bright. He got that sugar hit into his system. And remember, he went out of the, the uh, caves and engaged in the battle before Israel did. So he's probably even hungrier than them. He's been fighting for probably, you know, 45 minutes, an hour longer and by himself. So he takes a hit of this honey and 
ah, he's ready to go. He's re-energized. That would have been great for the army. But somebody comes to him and says, your father strictly charged people with an oath saying, curse be the man who eats this day. He didn't know, now he does. And then the next phrase, and the people were faint. Can you imagine being engaged in battle? You haven't eaten for probably a day and a half. And now you're engaged in battle. Not only are you chasing the enemy, but you're wielding your, your um, weapons against them. You're defending yourself when they're attacking. You're carrying your loot, your stuff with you that you're going to need for the battle. And you can't eat. These people are exhausted. They're faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little bit of honey. How much better if these people had eaten freely of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been as great. Did God deliver by many or by few? Yeah, he sure did. But we have a role in that. We have a place that God doesn't just do it you know, apart from us. We have a, a place in his plan to deliver. And he did deliver, but it could have been better had the foolish oath not been put on them. It, it just didn't make any sense that, that he did it. And Jonathan recognizes, I think it's his very careful way of saying, I wouldn't have done that. He says, my father uh, has troubled the land. The word for troubled is like stirring up the water so it's all muddy. That also is used in another context that really ties into this. It's from Judges chapter 11 uh, with Japheth. It's a similar situation. Japheth is raised up as, a, as a, um, a judge in Israel. He leads Israel out in a very successful battle, and he makes a foolish oath. He says, the first thing that comes out of my door is sacrifice to the Lord. And then when he returns, he says, why have you stirred up? Why have you troubled me? Because his daughter, his only daughter comes out the front door. Now, the way that ties into this story is Saul has raised up. And we've said before, he could have been a judge, but he's the king and he's not doing particularly well. And he leads them in a military, well, kind of leads them in a military victory. He followed Jonathan and kind of got him into a military victory. And he issues this foolish oath and he endangers his son because his son is the one who ate. So, so we can see this connection to the judges there. The battle could have gone better had we not done that. So in verse 31, they struck down the Philistines from that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. Notice they were faint before. Now they're, they're finishing up the job and they're about ready to pass out. The people are very faint. So the, the, the mission is done. They've defeated the Philistines. Verse 32, the people pounced on the spoil and took the sheep and the oxen and the calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate the blood. They're so starving. They're so hungry. They're just tearing into these things and eating because they're about to pass out if they don't get some food. The problem here is they ate the blood with it. Um, so what do they mean? What's so big about those slaughtered them on the ground? Well, if uh, I came from the Midwest and at certain times of the year, the church we just knew was going to be really thin because it was deer hunting season or duck hunting season. And so we had a lot of hunters and we went over to one guy's house and he had got a really nice sized deer, had strung it up into his, in his uh, garage, hung it by its back legs, and he was slaughtering it. He slit its throat and was letting the blood drain out. And then he was cutting it up and they were going to have some venison. That's how you bleed out an animal, is you put it up higher than its head and then you slit its neck and the blood runs out. 
slaughtering on the ground doesn't give the chance for the blood to escape. In other words, they didn't take the time to truss it up into a tree. They didn't find something high to set it on. They just dived on it and started stabbing it with a knife and they're, they're ready to eat. So they're eating with the blood. Now, what's the problem with the blood? Well, Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 12, both say you can't eat animals with the blood in it because the life is in the blood. That blood is what's offered on the altar. That's the sacrifice for you. That's the atonement for you. So you don't eat that part. But it goes back even further than that. This goes back to the Noahic covenant. When, when Noah had emerged from the ark, God said, you're free to eat any of the animals. You may not eat the blood in them. So this is not just a matter of law. This, trans, this goes beyond the law. It's, it goes much further than that. It's a sin to eat animals with the blood in them. Now, time out. <laughs> if you have a steak like I did last night, which was really great, it was, a, it was um, a prime rib and it was USDA prime picked up from Costco, great meat. When I cut it, the juice in the bottom of the plate was red. That's not blood. That's just the juice of the animal. I have, I have a friend I know that won't eat it if it's red like that because they think it's the blood. It's like, it's not the blood. They, they bleed these animals out. They don't you know, let them go with the blood in them. The blood would congeal and it would be really nasty. So it's not okay to eat the blood in the animal. That goes back to Noah. It also goes forward to the church because at the Jerusalem council, they said, don't eat anything strangled or with its blood. So this is, this is a principle that goes beyond just the law. But the people violated that. They were so hungry. They just began to eat. And so they're eating it with the blood in it. They came and they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a stone here before me. So what does he mean you have dealt treacherously? Well, that you is plural. And you can tell from the next section, he's talking to the leaders of the people. You, you've dealt treacherously. Has he, have they dealt treacherously with him? I'm not sure how he figured that it was their fault that the people were sinning. So he says, bring a great stone. What he's going to do is he's going to say, now go back to your people and have them bring their animals that they got and set them on the stone and slit the throat and let the blood drain out and then they can eat. And then it, the chapter ends or the section ends with Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built. Um, the point of building an altar to the Lord is when sometimes I think when we think of a sacrifice, we think of burning the whole animal up on the altar. And there was a burnt sacrifice that was like that. But fellowship offerings, peace offerings, you would take a portion and you would burn it. You would take a portion and give it to the priest. And then you would sit down and feast on the rest of it. So these sacrifices were often great feasts. They were a great time of celebration. And this is exactly what the people need at this point. So he sets up an altar and it's feast time. And so let's go. So they sit down and they eat. Um, so what do we do with the story? Where do we go with this? That's, that's a pretty straightforward story. Um, last week, I said, I, I made a lot of hay over this, is you have to find yourself correctly in the story. Where do I fit into this? And I said, you're not Jonathan. I, I wish you were. I wish I was. But we're not Jonathan. Jonathan is the king of Israel's greater son. He's a picture of Jesus in this case. And we're not Saul because Saul is a king in Israel, and we're just never going to fit that bill. Um, so we have to look for ourselves someplace else. But at the same time, we can look and say, be like Jonathan. Don't be like Saul. And that's legit, right? Saul, Jonathan is like, this would have gone so much better had we done it right. 
great. Jonathan's right. Saul, it's all about him, isn't it? We're going to, nobody eats until I'm avenged, till my name's cleared. You guys have all dealt treacherously with me by eating the blood. It's all about me. Don't be like that. Nobody likes you. Really, that's just not a pleasant person to be around. But really, I don't think that's the author's prime intent is to say, be like Jonathan, don't be like Saul. I think he's got more involved. So let's take a step back. Where did I tell us we were in the story last time? I said, you're Israel. You're Israel. So look at yourself in this situation. Where do you fit in? You're starving. You've been set free from these holes in the ground. And now because of some person's other idea, you are starving. And it can lead you to pass up a blessing and fall into sin because you haven't been treated well. So this is where I was talking about the danger of being religious, but not spiritual. Saul is being religious. He issues a curse. This, this is a curse. May God do so to me and more if, you, if anybody eats and I don't kill them. It, it's his curse. And, and at the end, he's going to be religious. He's going to bring out, a, he's going to make a sacrifice. This will appease God and make the people happy. Last week, we saw he, he was going to bring the ark out and say, let's bring the ark out. And then he says, no, hang on, never mind. Hold on, we're good. So he's, he's a religious person, but he's kind of religious like the kings of the nations. He knows how to use religion to his effect. We're going to do these things because it will, it will work for me. So Saul, in this case, is being religious without being spiritual. He's not counting on God. He's not counting on Yahweh being able to deliver and to save as his son was. He's thinking, this is all about me. I have to do this. Hey, I'm the king. This is my job. This is my role in Israel is I have to deliver us. I have to keep God happy. So let's, let's offer a sacrifice. But, you know, this is what I'm going to do. So the danger with being religious without being spiritual, if we take spiritual as the, holy, as the scriptures intend it to be, is what we can do is we can focus on the externals. What are you doing? How are you behaving? What are you not doing? We had a great Sunday school discussion about the Sabbath. And far too often in Christian circles, I hear the question asked, what, can what can't I do on the Sabbath? Folks, we're in the new covenant. <laughs> That's not the right question. That's not even the right approach. That's trying to be religious. We want the rules. Just lay out the rules for me, and that's what I'll do. Tell me what I have to do. Tell me what I can't do, and, and that's what I'll walk in. That's being religious without being spiritual. If you're spiritual, you're saying, how is the Holy Spirit leading me and guiding me? How, what has the Holy Spirit said in his word? What has he said through other people? How can I pray and ask God to fill me more with this? I want to be spiritual in this, not just religious. So Saul is doing all of these terrible things. He's, he's denied the people this tremendous blessing of the Lord, this honey. Now, it's not like a key word or, you know, a, a, a universal metaphor for something, but often honey is spoken of as God's word dripping and sweet. It, it's something you desire and you want to eat and you want, you want more of it. It's a good thing. So Saul brings the people into the forest. Here is the huge blessing of the Lord. Here it is laid out exactly what you need dripping from the trees. The bee, God providentially made the bees super productive. He, in other words, that spring, they had a tremendous rain, and so the flowers were abundant. So the bees had more pollen. So it was just great. God provi providentially provided that. So when they came into the forest, these hyperproductive bees have got honey dripping everywhere. God overabundantly provided for them. But because they're being led by religion rather than the spirit, 
don't eat it. You're missing God's blessing when you're more religious than you are spiritual. You've just missed it. It's, it's laid out. It's poured out before you. The feast is laid before you. That's something else we were talking about in Sunday school. We were built to desire. We were made to need rest. It wasn't like God created humanity and went, oh, rats. I didn't make them so they're, they're, they have incredible stamina. We better give them a day off. The Sabbath existed before man did. It was God's plan all along. The same thing when it comes to food. If you're hungry right now, and if you're thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? That's okay. God built you that way. He built you to run out of food and to desire more. And he built you so that he would provide that. And so when the people see the honey, here's God's provision, his overwhelming provision. I know you're starving. You're built to be starving. Enjoy. But religion says, no, I'm not going to do it. That would be inappropriate. So where does that lead to? Once we take that step and we're more holy than God, we're going to be more righteous than he is. We're going to come up with laws he didn't impose. Where does that lead to? When the people finally get what they, it didn't deal with the desire, did it? It didn't deal with the need. It exacerbated it. It made it huge. So when they had the opportunity, instead of eating the sacrifices, eating the meat that they were given in the appropriate way, they fall on it and devour because their, their desires had become so inflamed and so overwhelmed. Religion won't do that for you. It won't satisfy. It will make your desires worse and can lead you not only to missing God's blessing, but ultimately can lead you into sin. If you're only interested in the rules, if you're only interested in following the regulations, what can I do? What can I do? How much can I get away with? How much can't I? That kind of thing. That's the problem with having religion rule over you. So we're not Saul here. Saul is allowing a, a person who's religious but not spiritual to rule over you. It's not stated in the text, but I think we kind of have to infer it here. What about spiritual but not religious? Is that the right answer? If religious but not spiritual is the wrong answer, then spiritual but not religious must be the right answer, right? Well, what happened last week? Jonathan went across and fought the enemies that had terrified Israel and kept them trapped. And he liberated them so that they could come out of the holes, so that then he could join in him, join with him and pursue their enemies. They got the victory from the Israel's king's greater son. And what I said last week is, we get the victory because of Israel's, David's greater son, Jesus. He came out, he defeated our enemies. He set us free. He invites us to come in. Notice that the, the, the uh, Israelites, once they're liberated, once their enemy is put to flight, they didn't just step out and go, I'm going to stare at the stars for a while and just contemplate what that's all about. Or, you know, I, I, I think every religion is equally valid. So let's listen to the Philistines and see what they have to say. Maybe they have some insights about God that we don't have. And, you know, maybe we just won't do anything. I'll just go sit up on a mountain by myself. That's not what it means. That's what it means to be spiritual, but not religious, is to say my spirituality has no structure. I don't like organized religion. So that leaves you with what? Disorganized? Chaotic religion? That's not any better. If we follow the, the pattern of the world as far as spiritual but not religious, what they're saying is, I want to explore spirituality, but I don't want any rules getting in the way. What we need, what we need is a spiritual religion that the Bible intends. We need to have a religion that is spiritual. We need to have religion. We need to have this structure. The Lord has given us structure. He's given us his word. He's given us the church. He's given us instructions on how to live. To only go with that is to be religious. 
to abandon it and just say, I'm going to do what I feel is spiritual. But to say spiritually religious, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. He, he has sealed you for the day of promise. He has promised the resurrection to you. He's in given you a new heart. And on that heart, it says he has inscribed God's law. You have now a heart that is made new by the power of the Spirit, inclining you towards obedience, making you seek more obedience. That's spiritual religion. That means it is best to be in church on Sunday. Does that mean if you aren't on church on Sunday, you're in sin? Could, but it might be something else. It might be some other thing. You have to listen to the Spirit in that. We don't want to be overly religious, and we don't want to be overly spiritual. We want to be biblically spiritual. So that's the picture here is Saul has blown a great victory because he was overly religious. He's, he's imposing these ideas, and since he's not spiritual, he's thinking it's all about him. I'm the king. I want my name to be avenged. When we meet David, David's going to look at the Philistines taunting and say, who are these uncircumcised Philistines opposing the army of, not Saul, the army of the Lord. They can't do that. That's to have the balance, the religion and the spiritual. That's what we're looking for. So again, don't be like Saul, but don't let Saul rule over you either. We've, the Lord has given us many things to make us spiritual, right? He's given us a whole bunch to make us more like Jesus. And they're given through the Spirit. He's given us his word. We have the complete canon. All that he said, he said he's going to write down, he has written and he has delivered it to us. What Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 is this has been given to you. It was written down for your benefit upon whom the end of the ages have come. This is for you. It's spiritual to read the word. It's not religious. It can be religious if you're doing it mechanically, but it's spiritual to read the word. It's spiritual to pray because he has given us this heart, this spirit who will pray when we don't even know how. Romans chapter 8. He will cry out for us with groanings too deep for words. It's spiritual to be praying. It is spiritual to be in the congregation. First, or, uh, uh, I almost said 1 Corinthians again. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 says, you who are spiritual, restore one who's in sin with a spirit of, of, um, of mercy or kindness. You who are spiritual, he doesn't mean this wafty, you know, into Buddhism and reincarnation and you read your horoscope this morning. You who are spiritual, you are guided and led by the power of the spirit. When you come across a brother who's not, who's not walking in accordance with the spirit, you who are spiritual, restore that person. We are spiritual. And even church discipline and correcting a brother in sin can be a spiritual exercise. It can also be really ugly and be religious. And you're just going to browbeat somebody into it. Ugh, you better. So this is what we're looking at. This is the picture we get as we get Jonathan, the Lord can deliver by many or by few. Let's go engage his enemies. That's spiritual in a biblical sense. That's trusting in the Lord, saying God is actually involved in our day-to-day -day operations. He's involved in our life. And you get Saul. He's religious. Bring the Ark of the Covenant. Set up an altar here. I'm going to take an oath. And he's not relying on the spirit in those, kind, in those instances. So we're not done with the story yet. We've got to finish out chapter 14. There's still more to be said. There's still more bad news, unfortunately. Um, but what we got last week is 
we got the idea that Israel's sons or Israel's king's greater son has delivered you. He's defeated your foes and set you free. This week we see now, now go ahead and be religiously spiritual or spiritually religious. Don't be either overly religious or just mushy uh, spiritual. We're called to be both. And we can do that because the greater son has delivered us. He set us free from those things. Jesus in, in John says, uh, John 16, he says, it's good that I depart. So he's looking at his disciples and says, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to be, I'm going to be executed on a cross. I'm going to rise again. And then I'm going to go into heaven. It's a good thing that that happens. You can imagine his disciples going, how can that be good? Because if I don't go, the spirit won't come, but I'm going to send to you the paraclete. So Jesus' ascension is this promise of being given the spirit because he's defeated our foes, because he's ascended to the throne. Now we have that spirit. So that's, that's the picture that we get so far in this, in this story is Jesus has done the work. He's given us the spirit. And now he says, now come out, join me in the battle. Follow along. And guess what you're going to find in the forest? Exactly what you need. Exactly what's going to satisfy you. Your most deepest longings at that point. Guess what you're going to find after we defeat your enemies? You'll have a feast but it's going to be appropriate. It's going to be right. It's not going to be religious. It's going to be free and spirit-led. With that, let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, we are grateful that you have sealed each and every one of us, that the promise is for us and for our children and for all of those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself, as Joel promised, that you're going to pour out, you're going to be poured out on all flesh great and small, male and female, everyone will be receiving your spirit, as many as the Lord calls to himself. And so, Lord, I pray for us individually, but also as a church, as a congregation, Lord, would you help us to not be religious, but not spiritual? Would, we, would you lead us to not neglect you and your calling and your gifts and your leading and your prayers and all of the things that you've done for us? And Lord, would you help us to not be spiritual but not religious in the sense that the world is like that, seeking truth in other places that you haven't revealed it. But Lord, help us to walk in the spirit, to obey and to hear and to heed what you've given us, that we might be your people and enjoy that, that promise that we've been given of a spiritual body to come. Lord, help us to attain to the resurrection, as Paul says. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing this last song.